You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We have been journeying through the book of Genesis, and yes, we're doing the whole shoot and match. We plan on finishing sometime this fall, and that being said, we're progressing our way through, and some of you may not have been here last week. And there's two things we want to do for you. Number one, we want to remind you that we upload these sermons at the end of every Sunday to um, our website. You can always go and listen to those through our website or through our app if you happen to miss it. But we do want to reset where we've come from and where we're going. Last week, we were looking at Genesis chapter 18, and once again, God was renewing this promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would someday give them a son, even though they're at the end of their lives, and even though they had waited and waited and waited. If you were with us last week, we saw that now this promise is going to become a reality, They are told, by this time next year, you will be holding a baby in your arms. It's a beautiful, powerful passage. But then it transitions. And we find Abraham in this conversation with God. And God has determined and decided that after an enormous amount of time and incredible patience and restraint on his part, he is now at the point where he's going to have to judge Sodom and the surrounding cities because of what's going on there, because it is so wicked, so evil, so broken, that he finally just has to put an end to it. And we see Abraham beginning to talk with God about this, and it's a really fascinating exchange, because the reality is, our current president did not write the art of the deal. The original edition came from Abraham, because he negotiates with God, And he gets to the point with the Lord where the Lord agrees that for the sake of 10 righteous people, if 10 righteous people can be found in the city of Sodom, he will spare the city. And in fairness, it's not really a negotiation that's going on. It is a very deliberate display of the fact that our God is relationally responsive to us. He doesn't want to destroy the city. And he very willingly if you want to call it, negotiates with Abraham and gets that number all the way down to just 10 people, which is a fraction of the people who presumably were living in the city at that time. God's judgment is never the first resort. It is always the last resort. And we will see that once again today. But in biblical language, this is strong language to describe what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Their sin is great, it's grievous, and there is an outcry. And we understand what it means to cry out against injustice because a number of us have experienced this. I mentioned this on my sermon preview that we posted on Facebook this week. But how many of you remember the Unabomber in the 80s and 90s. Some of us, myself included, lived through that. I remember the headlines. I remember the fear. I remember the incredible um, heartache 
of here was this guy, no one knew for so long who he was, over a 17-year time frame, off and on, would mail these package bombs seemingly randomly to people all over the country. People would open them, and it would either kill them, or it would severely maim them and injure them for the rest of their lives. And there was this outcry, legitimately so, in our culture, this guy has to be caught, this has to be stopped, this has to come to an end, because it is wrong. And that's the same vibe that's here. Sometimes we read in the Bible and we come across words like outcry and we go, oh yeah, you know, there's, no, 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 no. This is a wrong that has to be ended. And we're about to see just how broken things really are here. In fact, the word Sodom literally means burning and there's foreshadowing going on here with even the name of this city. But unfortunately, people will come to a passage like this and they will wrongly think that God delights in condemning people, that God delights in judging people, that God is unreasonable, unfair, and on it goes, right? But what I would submit to you is that in every example of judgment in the Bible, it is always preceded by a long, long time frame of incredible patience and restraint by God and if that wasn't enough you will always see God providing ways to give people a way out of their brokenness always coming to them through a variety of means calling them away from brokenness calling them to something better giving them second and third and fourth and 80th chances but eventually the time comes where he has to put an end to evil and he has to judge and he has to to put an end to this kind of unrepentant, unturning from brokenness. And that's what we see in this passage today. But as I read you now this first part of Genesis 19 and this story, and as we enter this story together, this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to watch. And I want you specifically to watch for God's mercy, his patience, his grace, his restraint, even in the midst of this judgment story. So I'll read this to you. If you have a, a, a tablet or a phone or however you get to your Bible, turn it on, get to Genesis 19 or your hardcover Bible if you're old school like me. But get there, we're gonna walk through this together. So let me read it to you and then we'll work our way through the passage. So God has heard the outcry of the city and we are told in Genesis 18 as Gary Brashears walked us through this last week that now he is personally going to go and see exactly what's going on in the city. So here we go. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now we need to stop there for just a minute. We haven't heard about Lot in a long time. And if you'll remember with me, the history of this is in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to go to this land that he's promising to him. He doesn't tell him where he's gonna go, but he says, get everybody, get your family, and go. And Lot, his nephew, goes with him. That's Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, at the end of it, there's a famine, presumably then to escape the famine. In Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot and crew go down to Egypt. And Abraham makes the profoundly broken decision to tell Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. And so if you'll remember, she takes him, she, he takes her into his harem and on and on. And God eventually intercedes and Abram and Lot leave 
and go back to the promised land where they should have been in the first place, but they go back very rich and very powerful. And so there's too many herds, there's too much livestock for them to have the same area to settle in, so they've gotta divide, they've gotta go somewhere. And now in Genesis 13, if you'll remember, Lot looks out over this valley where Sodom and Gomorrah and all these other cities are, and he decides he's gonna go there. Now, I personally think he shouldn't have gone there, but at the very least, it is questionable if he should have gone there, but he does. He pitches his tent near Sodom, he gets caught in the middle of a war between some other kings and the king of Sodom, And Abraham has to put his life on the line to go rescue Lot, which he does, brings him back. And now as we come back to this story, Lot isn't just living near the city, he's now in it. And again, this is just me speaking, I think it's very questionable that he should even be in the city, but he's in the city. And as the story opens, what it tells us is profoundly important. Because what it suggests to us is that Lot is now part of the leadership of the city. He's presumably one of the elders, one of, so to speak, the city council. That's why he's sitting at the gate. That's where those folks were, so people could have access to them. So with all that in mind now, let's begin to finish our reading through the passage. So when he saw them, he got up to meet them, the angels, and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night. And then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and entered his house. So he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you like, but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back in the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness. So they couldn't find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life but I can't flee to the mountains. 
This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why the town was called Small or that's why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And thus he overthrew all those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Wow, it's a, it's a sobering passage to be sure. But let's begin to walk our way through it. So we see that Lot is at the, at the front of the city here, clearly part of the leadership. And what Lot does next is profoundly right. It is righteous. And what's important to know about righteousness, and especially as it relates to everyone in the Bible but Jesus, Jesus was always righteous, but even folks who were declared righteous weren't always necessarily behaving righteously. Even in this very passage, Lot will do some things and make some decisions that are not righteous. But what he's doing here is righteous. He's offering hospitality to these men and he's doing it in a way that is very powerful and very significant. And this goes right back to what Gary helped us see last week. When the angels showed up to Abraham, what did Abraham do? He personally met their needs, served them, invited them. Abraham and Lot, important men, prominent men, rich men who humble themselves and personally help these men who have come to them. They, they serve them. They connect with them. And interestingly enough, an ancient hospitality, in fairness, called for this. Lot would not let them stay in the public square. But could there be another reason why he will not let them stay there? Is it more than just hospitality? And I think we know the answer. Yeah, there's more than hospitality going on with him taking on them under the protection of his roof. It would not have been safe for them to stay in the public square. So now we look at this, and it's a train wreck all the way around, and that is the point here. There is no one single sin that was the sin of Sodom. There were multiple sins, multiple brokenness, multiple things going on here that are distorted, broken, disordered. Let's start with the whole idea of safety. The safest place in the city should have been someone's house unquestionably. And yet, what's happening here? And this is the great irony that plays out in all these things. Safest place in the city should be your own personal house, and yet it seems like maybe the square maybe should have been a little safer than his house. Because look what's going on here. I mean, let's think about this as this relates to your life and where you feel safe. Do you feel safe in your home? I mean, hopefully you do, but I noticed something 
as I went for a run this, this last week with my, my wife, Jamie, we try to run almost every day. And that took a hiatus of several months when my wife herniated her disc in her back. And, but we've slowly been working our way back. And I noticed on a run just a couple days ago as we're going through our neighborhood, and understand I run through this neighborhood all the time, but I just don't notice detail. And here are all these houses with these security signs in the front yard. And as I begin to pay attention and really look around, it seems like they're everywhere. More houses than not, at least in my neighborhood, have these big signs from these various companies that sit in their yards that say, we have a security system. Interesting. Do you remember the day, back in the day, when you did not have to lock the door to your house? Or the doors to your cars? Now, according to my young adult kids, I'm a living fossil, but I'm really not that old. I'm about to turn 50 this next week, which I guess you could say is old, but it's just a number, right? Okay, all that aside, I remember that day. We often locked the door to our house, never locked the door to our cars when I was a kid, ever. No need to. In fact, when I was a kid, and this is true, in third grade, I walked every day by myself two and a half miles to go to school. Through neighborhoods, but also through these rural parts that had woods and hills. And now understand, it was uphill both ways. There was constant <laughs> snow. It was after five hours of chores that I had done in the morning, and then I went off to school. Okay, we went off the rails on that last part, but the first part is true. I used to walk alone every day to school, two and a half miles, sometimes uphill, sometimes in the snow because it was bend. But here's the deal. I would never have let our kids do that today, ever. In fairness, the good old days were not so good. Don't ever let anyone tell you the good old days were, were really, really good. Yeah, to a point, but we tend to overdo that. When we think about things in the past, we often tend to make them better than they were. But this is the reality. Things were not as broken then as they are now. And things now in our culture are nowhere as broken as they are in this passage. Let's go back to you and me. Can you imagine having someone as a guest in your home and being afraid that the men of the city were going to surround the home and gang rape them because they were under your roof? That's exactly the picture that's going on here. This is about gang rape. But it's more than that. And the sin of Sodom goes far deeper than that. Sodom is talked about as an example of wickedness throughout the Old Testament and the New. Let's just jump to the Old Testament that gives us a little more detail on what in the world is going on here in this city. Now, this is language of personification. Sodom's being compared to a sister of Jerusalem, another city, but this is what's being said. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty. They were detestable. Now, in fairness, this word for detestable is used for different things, but it's also used in Leviticus 18.22 to, to describe homosexuality. And I know that it's not politically correct in our culture, but it is biblically correct to say that the only sexual relationship that God blesses, that God has ordained, that God wants for his people, is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life as husband and wife. Everything else that falls outside of that is, is broken. And I know this is sensitive and I, and I know 
you know, this is difficult to do business with, but it is the truth of, of God's word. And yes, homosexuality is one of the sins that is being singled out here as a sin that is being judged by God. But we have to understand it's not the only sin. And there is no one sin that defines the sin of Sodom. It's all this stuff. Look what else that's going on here. What were the people of Sodom doing in addition to what we've already talked about? Nothing. And that's the point. They were doing nothing for the vulnerable. Nothing for the poor. Nothing for those people in every culture and society who go unseen, unregarded, undervalued, forgotten about. No care or concern whatsoever for the poor and needy. That is sin. That is broken. That is wrong. Their stuff was more important to them than people. They were materialistic. That's broken too. What about this whole issue of hospitality? In an honor-shame society, the last thing you would ever do would be to bring shame on yourself, your family, or your community. It is absolutely unthinkable that guests in someone's home would be threatened with gang rape by the community around them. That is, that is the apex of shame in that kind of a culture. No community would ever behave like that. That's completely unthinkable. And what's going on? This community is behaving exactly like that. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the only thing that's broken. We have struggled with this and wrestled with this as a preaching team. And it's just crazy. So Lot thinks it's better to send his two daughters out the door so these men can rape them versus the two guests under his roof. And, it, and really, that's not really the issue. It's just that his mind would go there. Now, in fairness, as the preaching team and I did what we encourage all of us to do, and that was enter the story this week as we were wrestling with this passage together, there's no excuse for this. There may be an explanation, but there is not an excuse. I mean, in fairness to Lot, Put yourself in this situation. This is what's happening. It's the middle of the night. You're probably not thinking rationally. You're scared out of your wits. You don't know what to do. And so this just blunders out of your mouth. I mean, maybe that's what happened. Again, we don't know for sure, but boy, we know this is broken. This is profoundly broken. And if that wasn't enough, when the angels have come to him and said, it's time to get out of the city, he goes to his son-in-laws and they think he's joking. They won't even take him seriously. He apparently has no moral authority with his family, or at least this portion of his family. And if that's not enough, in an honor-shame culture, you would never treat an authority like this ever, especially publicly. Lot is on the city council, presumably. He is one of the elders of the town. He could even be the mayor of the town. It's unthinkable you would ever disregard authority like this. We struggle with authority, and in our culture, we continue to go towards defying authority, resisting authority. Not so in this culture. You would never do that, and that's exactly what's happening here. Do you get the picture? Everything is broken in this culture. Safety, sexuality, stuff, hospitality, family, authority, you name it, it's broken. And the ultimate irony here is that Lot takes these men in these home, he rescues them, and they end up rescuing and protecting him. Okay, can we just move on to Genesis 20? I mean, what a sobering passage. But I want to go right back to the very beginning of where we started. 
Do you remember what I asked you to watch for as we opened this passage together? Where is God's mercy and grace in this? It is all over it. And it actually starts previous to what we're reading today. If you think back with me to Genesis 13, when Lot was deciding where he was going to go, there was a little statement in there in Genesis 13, 13 that told us what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It said they were sinning greatly and incredibly wicked. That is really, really strong biblical language for brokenness. They were broken in every single way. That was 24 years before the story we're reading today. How long had this been going on in Sodom and the surrounding cities? Decades. Probably even longer than that. How much time did they have to change their ways, to respond to God's grace, to respond to his patience, to walk away from what they were just openly embracing and doing? They had tons of time to do that. If that wasn't enough, Genesis 18, as we saw, said that God personally wanted to go see what was going on there. Now, you have to understand, he's God. He knows what's going on there. But that shows the heart of this God, that his judgment is not the first resort. It is always the last resort. So he goes personally to see what's going on there through the angels there. And then if that wasn't enough, God willingly, if you want to say negotiated, with Abraham for just 10 righteous people in order to spare the city, which again shows the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Abraham. Abraham wasn't just concerned about the welfare of Lot and his family who were in the city. He really did care about the whole city, and he was advocating for the city, and God was advocating right there with him. For 10 people, he would spare the entire city. He couldn't even find half that amount. Four people got out of that city because there weren't 10 righteous people to be found there. And let's talk about the power of one. Why was small spared? Zor, that's what Zor means, by the way. Why was the city of Zor spared? Because Lot went there. One righteous man spared that city. Because again, what people will do is they will come to a passage like this and they will say, oh, how unfair, how unreasonable. God's a condemning God. God's a God who has it out for everybody. Nothing could be further from the truth. Passages like this in the Old Testament assert this, and this, all of God's word is from God, but this is the Lord speaking directly. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I what? Take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God does not delight in judging wickedness, but he will when he has to. And at this point, he absolutely had to. Chance after chance after chance, time after time after time, he had to step in and do something about it. Which brings us to Lot. Should Lot have been in that city? Well, that's debatable. But this is what we do know. Lot was in that city. And I would submit to you that God had him in that city since he had chosen to go there, whether he should have or not, to be a righteous influence. Because in the New Testament, Second Peter says that Lot, 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 Oops. Lot was a righteous man. I'm going to hear about that in preaching team. Tell us more about Rot. Unbelievable. He was a righteous influence in that city. 
we're told that. Because that is what God expects for his people. We saw this in Genesis 18 last week. If you know the Lord, you are a new person. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you and you are in right relationship with God, right relationship with other people, right relationship with land, right relationship with self because that's what we were created to originally be. It's called shalom, the way God always intended things to be before sin and brokenness and selfishness and evil entered the world. That's what we were originally created to be was righteous. And you don't become righteous apart from God. Righteousness only comes from God himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Yeah, your behavior does not make you righteous. Only God does through a relationship with Jesus Christ and then his Holy Spirit coming into your life and empowering you to live the very life that you were created to live. So therefore, God expects us to live out righteousness and justice. So let's start little picture and then go big picture. Little picture, you and me. Are you righteous? Let's take that a step further. Are you a righteous influence? You know what the good news is? If you know Jesus, positionally, you are righteous. But practically, you can be righteous. You can do this because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you to empower you, strengthen you, encourage you, guide you into making righteous choices. There are a number of you who are profoundly righteous. You are. Because you love Jesus and you're seeking to follow him with your life. Perfect? Of course not. That job's taken. That's Jesus. You're not perfect. Someday we will be when we're with him, but in this life, we still can be righteous. And you need to understand and appreciate this reality. You are the only Jesus follower someone knows. Have you appreciated that reality? Think about your life, your school, your work, your community, your neighborhood, the relationships that you have. Or think about it this way. Take out your phone. You don't have to literally do this. But take out your phone and you start scrolling through your contacts, I almost guarantee you there is someone in there who you are the only Jesus follower they know. So is it important for you to be a righteous influence? Yeah. And a number of you are. And the incredible encouragement in reality is you don't have to live out of brokenness. If you know Jesus, regardless of what you're up against, you have the power and the ability to live righteously, to be who he has called you to be. Because at the end of the day, practical biblical righteousness is doing justice, and justice at its heart is being willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the worthless person. And a number of you do that. Let's go big picture. How do, we, how do we live that out as a church? In a lot of different ways. Some of these you know, some of you may not. 
We host something called Foster Parents Night Out on a monthly basis here at Grace where we take in 40 to 50 kids and foster kids and we love them and spend time with them and give their parents or their guardians or whoever the opportunity to go um, have a date or um, just have some downtime or whatever. But we collaborate and partner with other churches in the community, but we're the only entity in this part of the county, the Church of Jesus Christ, us, that does this. Because it's a justice issue. It's about living out righteousness and loving everyone. Or what about backpack blessings? Every week, 50 backpacks go out of this place to kids right here in our neighborhood through East Gresham Elementary that provides food for them on the weekends when a number of them don't have access to food. Both mom and dad work, or there's a single parent who's doing everything possible to hold things together, but they're kind of on their own, and we step in and say, we'll help take care of you, we'll help feed you. 50 backpacks every week. And this goes on constantly. We have a food bank here that we've been in partnership with for years. On Thursdays in this auditorium, this becomes the distribution center for food for over 30 families right here in our neighborhood. This is us trying to live out biblical righteous and justice. And we were at it again last week. We've been talking with you some time about this possibility of a partnership with the immigration connection. And last week, that culminated in you overwhelmingly saying, yes, we want to be a part of this. And then we asked if you would consider giving towards it. And um, we were hoping to take in five to $7,000 to help with the startup costs of, of this ministry. And you said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to give $13,000 to that. So yeah, that's pretty cool. And in the most unprideful way I can say it, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And honestly, I'm not surprised. I'm not. It's just how you roll as a church family. You are profoundly generous. And it's going to be so much fun to hand a $13,000 check to that crew. And um, for those of you who are giving to the fellowship fund throughout the, throughout the month, the, those resources from here will go to the fellowship fund unless you say you want them to go to Immigrant Connection because we've blown that goal out of the water. Over $13,000, that's amazing. Why, why do we want to live like this? What compels us? What motivates us? What has God done for you? What has God done for me? He has rescued us from sin and brokenness. And man, he even does it when we resist him and don't cooperate with him. Once again, we see God's grace in this passage. He tells Lot to leave the city, and what does Lot do? He hesitates. So what does God do? The angels take their hands, and they compel them. They force them to get out of the city when they hesitate. Once again, God's, God's mercy at work. The angels tell him to go to the mountains, and what does he say? No, because he's afraid. And so they concede, and they let him go to Small. They let him go to Zor, and the city is spared because he goes there. But ironically, Lot's fear will continue to compel him to do things that are just crazy. And ironically, he actually ends up going to the mountains where he should have gone in the first place because he becomes fearful of his life once he gets to Zor. And then his daughter's fear takes over with them and some sketchy, horrible stuff happens while they're up in the mountains. They get their father drunk. They have sex with him, incest. And they both get pregnant because they were afraid they would someday never be able to have um, kids because they're not around anybody else. It's just them and their dad. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendants of these two daughters and they are bitter enemies of Israel and fight war after war after war against God's people. And all this goes back 
to decisions made by fear. But it also brings us to another choice about brokenness that we see here embedded in this passage. It says that Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And again, at first glance, this is one of those verses that we can look at and go, well, how unreasonable. How could God do that? How, how incredibly unfair. But here's the deal. This is more than just Lot's wife going, hey, I wonder what's happening back there. I wonder if what's really going to happen is going to happen. No, 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 no. This is giving us a commentary on her heart. She wasn't just stealing a glance. What she was literally saying by her actions is, I want to go back there. I want to go back to my past and to the brokenness there. I don't want to leave that. Does that resonate with you? You ever find yourself going back to past brokenness? For whatever reason, it's familiar, it's comfortable, feels irresistible, just don't feel like fighting it anymore, you fill in the blank. But you ever, you ever go back to your past brokenness, your past sinfulness? I do sometimes. But again, that's the hope in this passage is that don't have to. It's, it's a choice. God, is, God has freed us from that. Isn't that what the baptisms we celebrated earlier this morning are all about? The old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new creation in Jesus. I no longer have to live this way. I really can choose to live righteously and to get the blessings and the joy and the peace and the purpose and all that comes with doing things God's, God's way. And at the end of the day, what so encourages me about this passage is how God responds to Abraham. Very practically speaking, why was Lot and his family spared? Because Abraham asked for them to be saved and spared. God answers prayer. He wants to answer prayer. He does answer prayer. And their lives are spared because Abraham intercedes for them. And when it says God remembered, please understand it's not, oh, here's God up in heaven and, uh, oh, Abraham, oh, I forgot about him. Yeah, I remember. No, no. It's a very intimate, powerful way of saying actually the opposite of that. God is not gonna forget. Absolutely God remembers Abraham. Many ways that we could apply this but I want to end with this one, with the flavor of this passage and, and some of the things we've been talking about. Is there someone in your life you've been praying for to be saved? Or to put it kind of in less churchy language, is there someone in your life who you've been praying for to, to know Jesus? To be rescued from their brokenness? Rescued from something in their past? Some of you heard this story if you were here about four weeks ago. For those of you who show up late to service, you probably missed it. And that's okay, I'll retell it for you. But Pastor Bob at the time was doing highlights, walking through some of the things that are going on in the life of our church, like we usually do on a Sunday morning as we're getting started. And he told the story of his stepdad. You remember this story, for those of you who were here? The story of his stepdad is 
Bob's dad um, was out of the picture for many, many, many years, left when Bob was really young, and his mom remarried this man by the name of Ed. And worship team, please come as we prepare to respond here. And his mom married this man. And I don't think at the time, if I remember the story right, that mom knew Jesus, but stepdad sure didn't. And Bob came and met him and spent some time with them. And after he left the home, Ed, his stepdad, turned to his mom and said, I don't ever want that man in our home again. He is never to come through the doors of our house. Because Bob's a Jesus follower. He loves the Lord. Wasn't pushy, wasn't inappropriate, just, just loves Jesus. And Ed found that profoundly offensive and said, I don't ever want him back here again. So over the course of several years, decades, of deliberate, intentional, spirit-led, careful, at times, conversations, and a whole lot of prayer, just recently, towards the end of his life, Ed accepted Jesus Christ into his life as the Lord and Savior. Years and years and years of perseverant, faithful prayer. And he passed away about four weeks ago. And this week, Bob did the memorial service for his stepdad. And they know exactly where Ed is and who Ed is with. And they will get to see him one day. Because God answers prayer. We don't always get things the way we want. It doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. And yes, people have to come to the point where they decide to step over from death to life and receive Jesus. But our prayers are crucial to that. And so as we prepare to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as we once again choose to make him king of our hearts, this is the God who answers prayer. This is the God who wants to draw near to his people. This is the God who always extends grace and mercy and compassion over and over again before he ever executes judgment. This is the God who gives life. So choose life this morning. And let me pray his blessing over you as we do. You are the king of our hearts because you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray for anyone here who does not know you as their Lord or Savior or who is uncertain if they do that right now between you and them they would choose to ask you to come into their lives. That's all they have to do. And God, what incredible truth that is that you come and live inside of us through your Holy Spirit. You empower us to live righteously, to live rightly before you and with one another. And you are the God who hears us and responds to us and draws near to us. So, King of kings and Lord of lords, we make you king of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. And that we would be a righteous, irresistible influence to everyone around us as we point people to you. Thank you that we do not leave here alone. We leave here in the power of your Holy Spirit and as a community in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. We hope to see you next week. God's blessing on you. Go live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.